0: Hi, and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, the podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm David. I'm Monica. And today we're going to be continuing our animated films theme with the 1962 Harry Everett Smith film, Heaven and Earth Magic. So if you've been listening to the show, you know, normally this is the spot where we plug in the plot synopsis just so that you kind of have something to go off of. If you haven't seen the film, just to kind of contextualize our conversation a little bit. Uh, If you have seen this film, you'll understand why that's a little bit more difficult today. This is really in a lot of ways, a film that challenges the importance of narrative, if it can even be said to have a narrative at all. Uh, So in lieu of our traditional synopsis, I'm going to read a brief statement from the director regarding the plot of the film in his eyes. Quote, The first part depicts a heroine's toothache consequent to the loss of a very valuable watermelon, her dentistry and transportation to heaven. Next, the film follows an elaborate exposition of the heavenly land in terms of Israel, Montreal, and the second part depicts a return to Earth from being eaten by Max Mueller on the day that Edward VII dedicated the great sewer of London. End quote. So that's the director's take on the narrative of this film. We're going to get a little bit more into what significance that has uh, later in the episode, but first off, I, I thought... Monica, I just turn it over to you. I know a couple of weeks back we talked about Solaris kind of in terms of, of being an art film and and challenging certain standards we have for cinema. What did you make of this?
1: So after this movie, I was half expecting to get a phone call that said seven days (laughs) um, is pretty much how I felt. So kind of the reason I say that is that when you're watching this movie, you have um, for the most part, you've got a black background. It's all black and white. And then you have, I guess it feels like stop motion animation of different still images that kind of come and go across the screen. And then most of what you hear is just music and then there are like a few vocalizations and the film is a little bit over an hour.
0: I would like to to emphasize when you say that there are a few vocalizations, uh, there's no dialogue. There's some audio of kind of spoken uh, uh, people speaking, but it's like a carnival barker and I can't remember mm. what the other one is, but it's, it's very kind of um, uh, spoken word as like, you would hear ambiently out in the world. There's no kind of character to character discussion, uh, narration, nothing like that. Right. You, you, so you kind of compared this to the film from the ring. uh, I guess. So you would say it was primarily unnerving or what would that be fair?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't um, a a little creepy in parts. It wasn't scary. Like the movie from the ring, but it, def and when i say the movie from the ring of course i mean the video that you put in the vcr and curse yourself with um but it definitely i think both films if you can call them that have kind of like a black and white color palette and just a lot of weird stuff going on and it, neither of them seem very plot driven until you kind of have an explanation
0: about what's going
1: on right
0: right so before we start getting into kind of the nitty gritty, I thought I'd talk a little bit about the director slash animator slash creator, Harry Everett Smith. Uh, to my knowledge, he's the only person who worked on this film. We have discussions about, um, about autor theory and authorship of films here. It's very clearly, this is a vision of this one man. So a little bit about him. Uh, he grew up in Washington state to uh parents who were theosophists uh so this is kind of an obscure religion slash uh kind of a a cultist sect that involves the the combination of of european philosophy and kind of elements of both buddhism and hinduism he grew up kind of in that environment um And when he got to be college age, he went to the University of Washington for about two years uh, and studied anthropology. And then after that, he lived in San Francisco in the Bay Area for a period during the late 40s, which was kind of a boom for jazz uh, so he he was able to see kind of a lot of jazz legends. I saw Dizzy Gillespie mentioned. So he was part of this kind of blossoming music scene, or at least he was an observer to it. And at this time, he started making visual art. So primarily, he would paint, but he did also start to make films. And uh, at at this point, one of the things he did was painting specifically on the film strip uh which is a relatively uncommon practice just because it's really it's really inconvenient it's not practical you're working with the with a very small medium and it takes a very long time but this is something that we can also see in an, uh, another experimental filmmaker stan brockage uh, if you've ever seen any of his films there are, there I can't remember what it's called but there's like a I believe a 10 second film that's kind of various different colors and he's he's colored the actual film strip so anyway all that is to say at this period uh, Smith is kind of experimenting with art and this also the jazz music that was happening in the bay area seems to have been a really big inspiration for him and i guess if you're if you're familiar with jazz at all you'll know that it's known for being a, a highly improvisational genre and i think we can kind of see that in his work or at least see that in heaven and earth magic possibly what harry everett smith is most famous for is he is responsible for the, I believe it was a six-part record collection called Anthology of American Folk Music. So during the late 1920s, early 1930s, there was a boom of folk music within the United States that kind of immediately went bust because of the Great Depression. People no longer had money for records, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Smith was an avid collector of albums and had a large collection of uh 78 RPM records. He decided he wanted to preserve in some way. And so he put together this, this kind of compilation record. And that had a really big influence on the revitalized American folk scene of the 50s and 60s in the US. So people like Pete Seeger and Bob Dylan, uh, this would have been a point of inspiration for them. And then also as kind of a side note... He did know Allen Ginsberg, famous for the poetry book Howl. So he was kind of around the the beatniks in that, that scene. So that, I think, also informs some of what's going on in this film. To get into this specific film a little bit more, the animation style is uh, known as cutout animation. And so you were right, this is a form of stop-motion animation. So if you're familiar with say south park kind of has this look more so earlier in its run um also the the animated pieces by Terry Gilliam in Monty Python films you'll be familiar with this it kind of it has the appearance of someone who cut out strips of paper and would place them all down on a background, take a photograph, move one a tiny bit, take a photograph, et cetera, et cetera. I would highly recommend if you're listening to this podcast, even if you maybe don't normally watch the films, I would really recommend uh, looking this one up and, and at least watching a little bit of it just to get an idea of what we're talking about here. So this technique, the cutout animation technique, so... The Adventures of Prince Ahmed uh, from 1926, which is the the oldest animated film that we still have. I believe there are animated films before that, but kind of in the grand tradition of silent films, they were they've been lost possibly forever. Uh, but that employed uh, this style. I would also recommend people go look that up because I found a clip of it uh, on YouTube. I'm not sure the exact. Context, but it is gorgeous. It is really a beautiful, beautiful film. So I, I guess uh, sometime after this, I'm gonna have to have to actually go watch that. So anyway, uh, that's a, a little bit about the the techniques. I think that the end effect, one of the more striking things about the effect of this animation is that everything is very strictly two dimensional in this film. So we don't. There's kind of no attempt to create any semblance of of depth so what's I guess what what did you think of the animation style and like how how did that impact you emotionally or or however else
1: well so I have my notes that I wrote down here to answer your question but it suddenly occurred to me that what this um film reminded me so much of was the like turn of the century Sears catalog. At our parents' house, there are those glasses that have prints of the Sears catalog on there and it's kind of this same period, maybe a little bit later. And and this film uses so much 19th century imagery. It looks like that. Uh the other thing I was going to say is that Because of the stop motion, because it's in black and white, because there's no dialogue, it felt a lot like a silent movie, which you would normally watch and just have musical accompaniment. The only copy of this movie I found available was on YouTube. Um, When I was when I was looking in the comments, somebody asked if it was like an early animated film, I guess because they kind of got that that kind of impression because of its aesthetics.
0: I mean, I think, I think that's uh, an interesting point. It's very strange to talk about this now because independent cinema has changed so drastically in kind of a relatively short amount of time. So this film is pretty old, 62, right? So it's been around for a little while. Uh, but when you think about it, that's only... What is that? 58 years ago. And at this point, it was really part of the reason we have this this look and feel uh, aside from from the creative vision, which is kind of the dominant force. But part of the reason is also if Smith had wanted to make a three caballeros, he wanted to make something in that style. It would have been basically impossible. He would have had to have employed animators. You know, as we know, Disney had, you know, essentially a sweatshop, an entire system built up with tons of different people to create the animation that we so highly respect in in Pinocchio and and Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and this is kind of what we got even though this is years later from those films this is what you could do in animation independently and now things are so radically different like independent independently animated films can be made that look perhaps not identical to something like um like a pixar film but can be made that look incredibly sophisticated and sharp And so I guess one of the things that stood out about this to me is that, like, I enjoy, I kind of enjoy the gritty nature of it. I really like that it feels kind of loosely cobbled together while at the same time being very, very intricate, you know.
1: It's funny because I I guess kind of what you're saying is that it feels a little bit crude because you said not sophisticated. Sure. Um, But I, for some reason, I didn't take it that way at all. For me, it all and, – and of course, like I understand, he's limited by um, just doing something on his – like how many people did he have working with him?
0: Oh, on this? I yeah. believe zero.
1: It was literally just one guy?
0: I think so, yeah.
1: Wow. Well, I mean, so so clearly like he's limited in terms of like money and how many people, whatever. But also I still felt like the whole thing felt so intentional the way it was. Um, it didn't feel like it was corner-cutting or low-budget even, because it's so not a typical plot-driven movie that it's kind of like it makes you set aside all your expectations for what the quality should be. And so actually, that's why I, even though I referenced that YouTube comment earlier, I'm not sure that even without prior knowledge, I see just seeing this film, I would have thought it was from the silent film era because it just feels totally different from actual silent film era movies um, stylistically, you know?
0: Right. Well, I like, um, I like when you were saying how deliberate it feels uh, because it it really, it really does. It really feels like a singular vision, which is quite difficult at times to communicate with material that is this thoroughly grounded in experimentation and kind of art house sensibilities, right? It's odd. If something is this freewheeling, it's kind of hard to encapsulate. Like, is it, how does it remain a singular film, like a singular entity, as opposed to being kind of a grab bag of random things? And I think you're absolutely right that every, you know, every frame of it feels intentional. And it, it also, in some ways, it feels, it really feels very punk to me right like this this idea of like working with kind of less than less coverage and kind of less interest than the supposed professionals and still having a really strong vision and like carrying something out i still feel like this film looks very dirty and grimy but like you said intentional and deliberate so i'd like to get a little bit into the Plot or kind of however much plot we can really say exists here. So at the start of the episode, I read Smith's kind of statement on what happens within the film, uh, and there is some there is some kind of evidence that indicates elements of that. Uh, so, for example, there is the sequence in which a woman is is kind of placed into a chair and a man who, who appears could be a dentist seems to be working on her. Uh, and then after that, we get kind of the silhouette of a head in the background as, like, different things are happening, kind of implying that she's been given the, uh, I guess, a Novocaine, the anesthetic. But I guess what I was really interested in here was kind of what i guess how much of a difference does this plot make to us because i so i read that after having seen the film when i first saw it i i kind of assumed like there's no i don't want to say there's no rhyme or reason but there's not going to be a plot structure that we can exactly link point to point to point and then i i read that statement from him and another article kind of explaining a little bit more about how some of the imagery ties into that. Uh, But I still kind of feel like that's not, I don't want to say that's not a value to me, but that the level on which I enjoyed this film is not going to be based on like how much I can interpret it into a story after the fact.
1: Right. Well, I just thought that like, I don't think anybody without hearing from the director, is going to be able to get his story out of it. Because when I was watching it, I saw basically like an accumulation of symbols and you could get little bits of meaning out of it as you kind of mentioned. Um, And you could kind of sit there and make up stuff as you watched it. But there's nothing to say that you'll come up with the same plot that this is supposed to be representing, right?
0: Right. I guess just kind of for reference uh, Smith's statement about the, the plot of the film, this is not that dissimilar from what a lot of experimental artists will kind of say. So like, I remember seeing an interview with Andy Warhol uh, where he was, he was being pretty thoroughly grilled by a journalist about like, why do you keep, you know, painting the same thing over and over? Um, what's the artistic value in it? And they got, Kind of towards the end of the interview and Warhol just said like, oh, well, it, it gives me something to do. Um, so I don't I don't think we're we're intended to actually take that on face value and understand that Andy Warhol was just bored and had no actual interest in art. But it's a way of kind of deflecting questions that don't necessarily make sense within the medium. It's like the um, the Louis Armstrong quote. I actually don't know for sure if this is a, a quote from him or or if it's been misattributed or what, but the quote, if you got to ask, you'll never know. And I think this is kind of what we're working here. Artists who are maybe compiling something that has elements and certain themes, like you were saying, certain certain symbols and like motifs that recur, uh, that matter to them. But at the same time, like interpreting something in the context of like having a finite meaning is not really applicable. I guess I'm wondering what, what you thought of, I suppose the absence of plot and, and also kind of how does that interact with the runtime for you so for we didn't mention this at the top but for the record we watched the cut of this film that's about 66 minutes long i know he liked to create multiple different cuts of his film so i think there are other versions that are you know floating around somewhere but we saw the 66 minute cut uh so i guess what did you make of the absence of plot and kind of How did you feel watching something for about an hour that wasn't really telling you a story, at least in the traditional sense?
1: Um, Well, I'm jumping ahead a little bit because I think we're going to address this more later, maybe. But for me, this movie felt more like an art installation or something that you would have up as a projection at a trendy bar or a party that you could enjoy in the background. It doesn't really feel like something that you sit down and watch end to end, especially if it's the three hour version.
0: For sure. I think I had the same, the same kind of response that like, I think the first, uh, the first maybe five minutes or so I was really entranced by it. And I think after that, I don't want to say it's a chore to watch, but I think it's very it's it's very mentally exhausting, as you were saying, going through and just paying attention, focusing on this one thing as it goes.
1: Can I ask you a question really quick? Um, sure. When you watched this, did you actually sit and only watch it, or did you do something else meantime?
0: Uh, I sat and only watched it, but I did take a break um i think like 35 minutes and did you do something else
1: uh i was full disclosure online shopping on my other screen <laughs> i i mean i did i think i did kind of like you did for the first maybe 30 minutes i actually sat and watched and then i was like okay i'm going to go like i'm going to pull up my second screen and then i would like kind of glance back and forth
0: oh this is not acceptable we have to create watch rules Anyway, <laughs> no, but I mean, I feel you like the temptation is kind of there. And l- like you said, I don't, I guess that's kind of a, what I'm thinking about is it's not, I, I don't feel like this movie is boring as odd as that sounds. It, it it doesn't bore me, but it does feel like a very peculiar way to watch it.
1: I think. How we watch it? Well, okay. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about Solaris, and I was very vocal about how I did not watch that movie. or er, right. No, no, no. Sorry.
0: <laughs> I was <laughs> what?
1: <laughs> I hated it so so much. I just turned it off. No, um, I was very vocal about how much I did not like that movie. But I did actually watch it. I, I was I was doodling at the same time. Okay, but I I don't feel like that counts as like really multitasking right because i felt like i still need to pay attention because there is a plot here with heaven and earth magic i felt like it's okay if i go browse the internet because i'm not missing like a plot twist or anything you know it may sound because i was doing online shopping it may sound like i didn't like this movie i just want to make clear that that's not the case um i like this much better than solaris of course they're totally different movies um but it's just like i feel like you have you can't you can't absorb this movie the way you would absorb a conventional film
0: Uh next up I'd like to talk a little bit more about the sound design of this film. So also and this is uh this is kind of a category that I hope we'll be revisiting in the future because I think sound is a tremendously important part of films and also a tremendously under discussed part of films and I think here kind of like I talked about on our Don't Look Now episode of that film being kind of a good introductory point to looking into kind of subtext and themes of a film. I think this is a really good entry point as far as, as wanting to look at sound design in kind of a more creative way. Right. So we're kind of, we're accustomed to the idea that films are going to present us roughly the truth of, of the sound of any given space right we're going to hear the characters we need to hear talk talk We're going to, you know, hear the car rev or whatever. We're going to hear a gunshot. Um, And I think when you watch something like this, it really draws attention to the fact that those are all constructs, right? Like capturing the actual audio for a film. Like there's a a tremendous amount of work and designing and creativity that goes into that element of this medium. And so I thought we'd talk a little bit about it here. First off, as you had mentioned, there's no real dialogue in the film. Um, what words there are exist primarily as kind of ambient audio that you would hear traditionally in a public space. There's also no distinction between diegetic and non-diegetic sound. So I've talked about this before, diegetic being sound that occurs kind of within the world of the film. So you have a shot of me and I honk the horn and you hear a horn honking, that's diegetic. If you're hearing the narration about my morning when I was honking the car horn, that's non-diegetic. In this film, we have some audio that in some ways seems to kind of indicate a degree of like diegetic quality, but is still in accurate so for example every time a cat appears and there's a there's a cat that reappears periodically throughout the film and is always accompanied by the sound of a dog barking except for i believe the very the very first time i think it's a cat meowing that's kind of the violation of this diegetic non-diegetic dynamic because i guess as viewers we can kind of understand it as maybe being a little bit of a joke the idea that the cat whenever it goes around, it's haunted by the barking of dogs or, or you know, dogs are upset, whatever. But we never really get that clear messaging and dogs do not exist in the film. At least as far as I recall, there's never an image of a dog. So that's just one example in the ways that this, this film violates that. So I was wondering, Monica, I guess, what did you think of the sound? Um, I know before you had said that you don't really notice music in films unless it, it's really kind of stand out. How much did you notice the sound design here? And kind of what did, what did you think of it?
1: Well, first of all, about that cat. This, the funny thing is, when I was watching, I know what you mean. Like you see a cat, but then you hear a dog. And I think hearing the dog bark made me think I was seeing a dog. I'd hear the dog bark and I'd be like, oh, I thought that was a cat. And I'd look closer and I'm like, oh, I guess it is a dog. <laughs> and, but and I'm, I'm not dumb because <laughs> there's actually there's actually a scientific phenomenon behind that. So there's something that's called the McGurk effect, um, which is, quoting Wikipedia here, it's a perceptual phenomenon that demonstrates an interaction between hearing and vision and speech perception. The illusion occurs when the auditory component of one sound is paired with the visual component of another sound, leading to the perception of a third sound. I I don't want to keep reading the Wikipedia article, but if you Google McGurk effect, that's M-C-G-U-R-K, you can see like really cool videos where there's a guy talking to you, but the sound that he says is not the sound that you hear. And it's because the visual information is overriding the audio, the auditory information, and I just kind of wonder if if that's something similar to that is at play when I think I'm seeing a, a dog, or maybe I was just really tired. <laughs> um, but okay, so there's that. The other thing was, I guess the sounds that stuck out to me a lot were kind of like uh, screeches or screams and i guess they were human and they seemed to kind of delineate moments of violence um where the imagery in the movie wasn't clear enough for you to get that for sure so it, it kind of makes sense knowing afterwards that this is supposed to be about a visit to the dentist because going to the dentist is kind of stereotyped as being very painful because you're getting a like a you're getting a tooth pulled or whatever
0: I, I know the director says this is about a woman getting her tooth pulled, but there's kind of the main character is kind of this man who goes around and frequently has a hammer <laughs> yeah, and like <laughs> pops up in different circumstances <laughs> and like makes these really nonsensical things happen. And at the beginning of the film, there's a shot of him next to this cow uh, and he takes his hammer and he hits the cow. And then the cow there's, there's a sound of broken glass or glass breaking rather. And then the cow becomes like one of those diagrams that you see of where like certain cuts of meat come from. And then he pulls those, those parts apart and like creates a woman out of them. But I thought that that was a really interesting choice. Having, having him hit a cow with a hammer, which one would think would create like very, you know, a thud of some sort or some kind of like a, a deeper, flatter sound. And he uses this kind of the, the sharp like glass sound. And I, I think as a result, it kind of makes us question to a certain degree, like what even is the cow, right? Like we kind of immediately think of it as being organic matter, but no, maybe it's, you know, it's, it's glass, it's, you know, whatever else.
1: So something that occurred to me was use Okay, so the cow you're talking about, was that the skeleton that we said we saw kind of time and again in that movie?
0: I don't I don't believe so. Oh. Oh, I see what you're saying. Maybe it was.
1: So so okay, so this was really confusing to me because there was a skeleton that pops up time and again. And when the skeleton's on the screen, you hear a horse neighing. So Okay, McGurk effect, it's a horse. But I was looking at the skeleton and I'm like, why does it look like it has bones where its ears are? Because if you have even like a base knowledge of anatomy, you'll know that ears don't have bones or at least not bones big enough that they'd be obvious, you know, (laughs) um, from a distance. Um, And it just occurred to me that maybe that that was actually a bovine skeleton. And those bones were the horns that a cow has. Um, on its head, and maybe the m- movie was kind of pulling a cat-dog thing where you see a cow, but it neighs like a horse. And i <laughs> just like, what?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that that also kind of a testament to, to the oddball approach this film takes. I feel like here, if you just spend long enough going scene by scene, there are going to be all of these composite meanings and implications that like arise like this because it's such a stream of consciousness thing but also it's got like we were saying before it's so deliberate that I think there there are probably all kinds of elements like that in here that are going to pop up to us uh, the longer we talk about it um
1: so the lesson is don't show this movie to your toddler or they'll learn all the wrong animal sounds.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I I, can't imagine this being a good experience for that toddler.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they'll fail preschool. You have to be careful.
0: <laughs> so we were talking about the, the runtime and how it's kind of a strange experience watching this from front to back. Because it is kind of such a loosely constructed like free form piece, it's odd to to spend this much time singularly focused on it. I've seen other films that are somewhat similar to this, perhaps not in visual style, but in kind of form. Uh, So there's the very famous Kenneth Anger film, Scorpio Rising. Um, I believe that's about 35 minutes. That also is very free form there's not plot we kind of just see imagery pass through scene by scene while it's set to these these kind of like 50s classic pop songs and then there's also the the really famous experimental film by maya darren called Mesheds of the afternoon as a side note uh those of you out there if you're fans of especially david lynch's work Uh, Definitely check out Maya Darren. He lists her as an influence. But similarly there, I think we're seeing kind of a lot of like dream logic. We're not getting a lot in the way of hard plot details. But that's also a very short film. Uh, I, I believe about 15 minutes. But here we do get a full... Like 66 minutes. And if you ever submit a film to a film festival, there are kind of a lot of requirements, but most of them sort between like short films and feature length films, primarily for booking purposes. Because with short films, they can create, you know, a two hour long program with, you know, anywhere between five and 10 films or whatever the number is. And then feature films, they know they're going to have to block off a a separate program for it. Festivals typically consider anything over 45 minutes to be feature length and then under 45 minutes to be a short. The films I had previously discussed, uh, the Kenneth Anger and Maya Darren films, are both shorts by that definition. And this is actually a full length piece. I wanted to explore this a little bit bit more in terms of like kind of viewing this. I know we had said, or you had mentioned specifically that this film kind of would make more sense as an art installation in like a gallery, but I wonder how different would this be if you were to maybe see it in a movie theater, right? Like you were to go into a situation where you're a decent person and you don't look at your phone while you're in a movie theater um, <laughs> hey, 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 hey. <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't bother the other patrons of the theater is what I mean to say you're given just 66 minutes to focus your attention entirely on this how do we think that might be different in some ways because even like my viewing experience I violated that because I paused I took a break what would that what do you think that would be like could we gain something from that
1: I think I would have liked the movie less if I had to watch it that way. Because I'd be annoyed that I had to sit there for 60 minutes and watch a screensaver.
0: A screensaver? (laughs) Wow.
1: (laughs) Because um, that's something else that it reminded me of. So I, and perhaps this was not the director's intent, but I really feel like this, Film is not really aided by sitting and watching it in one sitting. I almost feel like rather than sitting down and watching it all the way through one time, it would be better if you had it going almost like a screensaver 24-7. And it would just be there as a presence in your home. And every time you had a look at your computer, I don't know if anybody has screensavers anymore, but say you did you would see, you would glance like a different part of it and notice something you hadn't noticed before. Do you know what I mean? Or you could like sit down and watch it for like five minutes at a time and it wouldn't feel so oppressive. And then you would repeat some parts and it would give you time to kind of like think about it and notice things you you wouldn't notice if you just watched it one time all the way through.
0: Oh, sure. Well, I, w- I would say like I, I understand your, I take your point um I don't know that screensaver is a good term to use because typically those are procedurally generated um so there's kind of an implicit like absence of meaning and creativity within that and this is I guess as you had said as we had talked about before this is very very deliberate
1: I I don't I want to push back a little bit because I don't really mean like I know okay screensavers are plotless and meaningless they're just there for like to fill the space right but i I just i guess i just mean in terms of the kind of aesthetics of this movie it kind of makes me think of um not newer screensavers but the like windows 95 kind of screensavers where you had kind of uh more kind of rudimentary pixelated artwork
0: i think it like I, i think your your point about Kind of having it sit and being able to revisit it and understanding it in that way is a really interesting one and very, and like very appealing. I feel like I might, I might try that because we don't, we often don't think about our viewing experiences in those terms. But a lot of times that's kind of how we wind up watching movies anyway because we're on our phones or, you know, doing something else or whatever. So we kind of have that experience with a lot of other art in neutral situations. So it might, this might be something that benefited from that. I don't know. I guess I principally, I asked this question because I think I tend, even though it's not necessarily the preferred method for any given film, I, I tend to want to try and recreate the theatrical experience as much as possible for uh, posterity purposes. It's COVID. The world is, burning, like fascism's really, really, really come to America, movie theaters, are they going to be a thing? I don't know. But I know that's something I've grown up with. And I know that was a big part of my time at college kind of whatever whatever money i could get i spent going to the movies so i think i'm very i'm very much attached to this idea of like going somewhere and having everything else having all these other distractions stripped away from you and being forced to interact with something i feel like there are a lot of movies that maybe i wouldn't be that interested in were it not for that experience but at the same time like i think i i really think you're right that this is this is in many ways best enjoyed in clips in portions, kind of like to your to your tolerance level, right?
1: So say we're not talking about the like hour-ish version of the movie. Say we're talking about the three-hour version. Is that something you could see yourself watching in a movie theater?
0: So I think I've only ever if memory serves, I've only ever walked out of one film, the Darren Aronofsky film *Mother*. For those of you who have seen the Darren Aronofsky film *Mother*, I, I don't like. If you liked it, just don't don't write to me. I don't agree with you anyway. <laughs> I think I th- think I w- I would for sure sit through the theatrical experience and watch it. But like I think to your point, I prob I I. I really doubt I would enjoy it. Well, so here's kind of the thing. Like I doubt I would enjoy it, but my question is like would I get something from it? Cuz I think there there have been films that I've seen that I did not enjoy that I came away from like learning something. Do you I I guess you would elect not to sit through the uh the 3 hour cut?
1: Oh no. Cuz what happens is I I just get annoyed. And I don't mean to sound petulant, but it, it, if, you, if you have a movie like this and you start getting to the three-hour mark, I start to think this filmmaker is super arrogant to think that he can take up three hours of my time with this kind of like super abstract, plotless thing. Even if there is value to it, I'm just going to start in, like being annoyed and ignoring everything or... Or paying attention, but then picking out all the things I hate about it. Sure. <laughs> like I'll, I'll I'll start I'll start holding a grudge in the movie <laughs> you know, while I'm watching the movie.
0: <laughs> well, I I think it's funny because that's very um, relatable. This is a little bit off topic, but I would like to delve into that a little bit more because you you talked about how if you were to go to see that, you would start thinking that the director is arrogant and he's wasting your time. And I think this is something that we see repeatedly kind of throughout not just art criticism but kind of reactions to art this idea that like when we don't like something in a particular kind of way it's not just that we didn't like it it specifically offends us and i know i know i've had that reaction before with plenty of stuff i told you i walked out of mother i was offended by that thing (laughs) (laughs) um and I think it's so, it's so interesting because I think when I sit down and just consider like, oh, yeah, well, the idea of getting offended about something that someone made that you were not required to watch or, or engage with seems so absurd, right? But like it's, so, it's such, a, such a kind of gut level reaction, and I don't, I don't know where that comes from.
1: Do you remember a couple of years ago, we were in Madison and you and me and Allie went to the museum?
0: The uh, the was... white, the plain non-painting, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I was at least I was like, WTF is this. And you were like, well, we're standing here or maybe it was Allie. One of you was like, well, we're standing here talking about it, aren't we? Which is a very good point, right? Like whatever, however offensive or stupid you think it is, people are talking about it which is more than we could say about all like so many of the other paintings in that gallery. So I I guess like that can totally have some value. The question is, is this the value that the artist wants you to get out of the piece? If Harry Everett Smith, say we're talking about the three hour version of the film, wants me to sit in a theater and get annoyed and that's what he's looking for. And he wants me to pick out all the stuff I hate about the movie then, and he succeeds, then I guess good job. But if, if he's actually hoping that I sit and watch it and I don't know, pick out all the symbols and look into it um, for some kind of deeper meaning and he's not able to accomplish that, or I'm not able to accomplish that because of the length of the movie and the, the situation that I'm viewing it in, then then that's another thing.
0: Along those lines, this brings us to, to an interesting kind of meta discussion about what what even the purpose of art is. And the, the first thing I think of, one of my favorite clips, which you can still find on YouTube, and I believe it's, I can't remember who does this series. I think it's The Hollywood Reporter. But someone does a series where typically they'll take – uh, professionals within the film industry typically within Hollywood and kind of put you know put a bunch of them at a round table uh, seven or eight and they'll have discussions about their films and the state of the film industry creativity etc cetera, etc cetera. and there was one in which Ridley Scott who's famous for directing Blade Runner and Alien and Thel- Thelma and Louise and countless other films uh, he's there, and so is Alejandro González Yaritu who directed *Beautiful* and *The Revenant*. And so they're having a discussion about what kind of why they make their their films, and. Uh, Ridley Scott his response is that well I make my films for myself and Gonzalo Signarito responded and he said like well you know if there's some kind of nuclear catastrophe and I'm the last man on earth am I still going to be making films probably not kind of making the point that that the purpose of this is at least in some ways communication the the point of the art is the audience. And so I tend, for the most part, I tend, tend to think in the terms that Gonzalo Signorrich laid out, right? The idea that art is messages being communicated between creators and audiences. But I do wonder what, what we think of the idea of, especially with a film like this, that maybe Harry Everett Smith was doing something for himself, and we're not really considered at all. And like, how does that how does that play into our interpretation of this?
1: Well, I was always taught that a piece of art isn't finished until somebody sees it or hears it or whatever the case may be. See, I don't think you can say he's making it for him. Well, how can you say he's making it for himself if he like let everybody watch it? Right. If it's really for himself, why don't you just make it? And I don't know watch it on his home projector
0: well i mean by himself if i make my if i make myself a sandwich and someone photographs it and shares it with the world like i don't really have a problem with that but it's still my sandwich
1: well okay but but a sandwich is not art like that's kind of a different a different thing isn't it
0: well, I mean, not not necessarily, because I guess I I I mean I I do, I do agree a sandwich is not art. Although I don't, uh, God, we're gonna get so many people mad at us.
1: <laughs> some some sandwiches are really really good though. They're basically They're, art, right? Uh, there's it's a culinary art, okay.
0: <laughs> it's a culinary quote unquote art. Be happy, whatever. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um. But it's not, so that's, that's kind of a a strained example, but I guess like, like you were saying the the idea that a piece of art is not done until, until someone sees it, but then I guess, so what if we were to take that to its logical conclusion and like I were to paint something and I hung it up in my room and like, I were the only one that engaged with it. What am I, what am I doing? What is that thing then?
1: I'm going to go off in a weird direction here, but I can't help but think about how there's been this discussion recently in the beauty communities about whether people put on makeup for themselves or for other people, because over the last few months, as so many of us have been stuck inside, there's been this like, well, why should I put on makeup kind of idea? And there's definitely a lot of people who still put on their makeup because it's something they do for themselves because it's... It's part of their routine. It's because they see themselves in the mirror, right? And there's other people who who just don't. for Because I guess maybe it didn't give them that much satisfaction. Maybe they were only doing it for professional reasons for when they were going to work. If you kind of look at art the same way, I don't know. Because I think the people who who get self-satisfaction out of putting on makeup are more like artists than the ones who who just apply makeup because there's a professional expectation that typically a woman's face has to look a certain way at like an office. Well, I guess I, I kind of think that um, there's such thing as artists making art for their own satisfaction, regardless of whether somebody else is going to see it. Because for me, as somebody who at least through high school did a lot of education and kind of visual like the traditional visual arts, you know, drawing and painting whatever. I think most of it most of it that I did when it wasn't a project that was assigned to me or something was just something that I was doing for pleasure and a lot of times it was stuff that I didn't even want other people to see because drawing was just a way of, I don't know, releasing stress or just um making some kind of imagery that I thought was interesting, which is what a lot of people do when they um make music, right? They, you know, they jam. Because that there's some kind of emotional fulfillment.
0: Well, I mean, I think that's a really good example is a couple of people like getting together to jam, even doing something that they might not ever like. I know I've done that with friends before where it's like we don't have any particular project or any any ideas of like turning something into anything. But like we you know, play around for a little while, I guess in some ways, like kind of the places we're going with this conversation, you have to wonder what what the benefit of even defining art is, because I guess whether you would call that art or not, does that does that like I guess if someone were to find a recording of that or were to find one of your drawings that you didn't necessarily mean for anyone to find, like, does that really change it?
1: I mean, and this is a this is a conundrum as old as time, I think. I, I think it's I think it's still an interesting topic to rehash and think about. And maybe, you know, there's also that aspect of making art, uh, that could be just like somebody who just wants to show off what they did. Not so much because they have a message to communicate to an audience, but they just made something and they're proud of it and they're like Watch this.
0: I guess to to finish up, I wanted to talk a little bit about this in the context of being avant-garde. The first, kind of the first steps in any medium are by definition avant-garde. When we did our month on horror and we talked about Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which was arguably the first horror film, that's avant-garde. It's never been done before they're taking their first steps. And so from that we kind of we derived a lot of like oh well what are these tropes that got established and where you know where did the form go where did the genre go after that and so I was wondering since this film is avant-garde as well what does it do that makes you kind of rethink how films works or rather does it you know does it do anything that makes you rethink that
1: I think um, kind of aside from what we've been talking about so much about how it can be, it's more like installation art, something that you don't sit and watch in one sit- setting potentially, um, and and that was kind of a new idea for me as far as a feature as as far as a being a way to consume a feature length film. Something that it also make made me think of is assemblage sculpture. Um it's if you if you know what like a collage, which is like 2D papers that you know you paste together. Um assemblage is basically the same thing, but it's 3D. So you might have, for example, some kind of um like a wooden box with the front open and then inside the box you would maybe glue different objects and paint different parts of it. And they it would could be like random little toys or knickknacks or you know, I don't know screwdrivers, whatever you have um and that that's known as assemblage, and the aesthetic impression of this film to me was basically the film version of assemblage, or I guess collage, but something about the subject matter of what this of what was in this film made me think of assemblage because assemblage is so typically kind of kind of weird and a lot of times mechanical looking. Uh, so that was the first time I think I saw that kind of effect in this medium.
0: Uh, I would recommend at some point checking out uh, some of the animation that Terry Gilliam did with Monty Python. Because I think if if you thought that was interesting here, that has a lot of similar characteristics. To kind of bring this to a close, I want to talk a little bit about how we talk about experimental films. So I think... Anyone who's who's made something that is more experimental and specifically non-narrative has certainly received the question of like, well, what does it what does it mean? Uh, I think that's that's kind of something that you get really, really frequently and in some ways I guess is is kind of just a human instinct to ask that. I, I wonder how how fruitful do you think these questions, especially about a film like this, are? And do they really do they really illuminate anything that's going on with the film? We had talked a little bit earlier about Smith's kind of his interpretation of the plot here, but is that the same as the meaning of the film? And then kind of, if we could have a neat meaning of the film, does that impact what it is?
1: I mentioned in when we talked about the three caballeros, sometimes a cactus is just a cactus. (laughs) Um, And we tend to expect messages with films because they are so often plot driven. But I wanted to bring up the example of painting because a lot of painting is a lot of times art or or any any kind of art frankly but this is just something that i'm more familiar with a lot of times it's just artists experimenting with techniques or compositions so several podcasts ago i mentioned monet's haystacks where he painted the same field of haystacks over and over and over again but um at different times of day he also did it with um like a church church facade very famously so um Uh, because he was an impressionist and impressionists were, were very famous for experimenting with these kind of new techniques. So anyway, um, what I'm saying is that um, I'm not, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily the, the sole uh, goal that Harry Everett Smith had in mind here, but I'm just saying that oftentimes that can be the goal of art. And in that case, there's not really a message to be had.
0: Right. What I think of, because I have more experience with it is in music a lot of times if we're listening to something or even like if we're out and about as we used to be before the world ended uh and you're in an elevator and you hear the elevator music right which is typically like kind of mid-paced mid to slower pace like soothing inoffensive music we don't really go into that and think like well what's the meaning here because it's kind of understood that in some ways there is no meaning, there is no, there's not really a point. This is placed here to to do what it is doing right now. It sounds soothing. That's the point. And so, in in, in some ways, I wonder if that's not the same situation with with this film. Uh, we can kind of ask and and psychoanalyze and try to figure out exactly why these things are happening. Uh, but maybe it exists to do exactly what it is doing.
1: To to annoy the viewer, in other words.
0: No, I did not. I did not say
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But yeah, I, I
0: yeah. Right. But you, I, you get, I, uh, I see what you mean. yeah, you get my meaning. <laughs> I guess it's a good time to bring it down to to kind of uh, finishing thoughts. I guess, would you recommend this film and kind of in what what, how would you recommend someone Digest this film if they were going to.
1: I think I have to say, as I know I've said before, that I wouldn't recommend this to just anybody. And when I say anybody, I'm talking about people as a whole, not like film aficionados. Because I mean, I just know there there's certain people who will appreciate it, and those who won't. And those who won't will probably not have the patience for something like this. Um, but for the people who I think could get something out of it, I would. Even tell them my experience and say, you know, um, maybe just like have it on and and I don't know, eat your dinner and wash some dishes and just kind of absorb it ambiently and see if you get anything out of it.
0: I think I would probably have to agree. I think I, I would be really curious to have that experience with this film as opposed to the one I had. Um, So just to cite my sources, uh, a really big help was the Harry Smith archives at harrysmitharchives.com. Highly, highly suggest everyone go check this out. Even if you're not a big fan of this film, Harry Everett Smith was a tremendously interesting individual and they have a a pretty in-depth biography on there that I I would highly recommend reading through. Uh, Also, I consulted the article Mind, Medium, and Metaphor in Harry Smith's Heaven and Earth Magic by Noel Carroll, and that appeared in Film Quarterly. And as always, uh, Wikipedia was a tremendous help. If you want to reach us on social media things, we are on Twitter at Mayday Matinee. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Maybe Today Matinee. If you want to help us out, check us out on Patreon at Maybe Today Matinee. We are incredibly appreciative. Uh, And also, if you want to send us an email, we are MaybeTodayMatinee at gmail.com. Be sure and tune in next week when we will be discussing the 1959 film Magic Boy. I'm David. I'm Monica. And this has been Maybe Today Matinee.